Welcome to the third episode of the Petite Polymath. This is your host, Britt Stone, and today we're going to be talking about the book Oreo by Fran Ross. I'm going to stop my music shortly and we'll get started. Okay, so Fran Ross, interesting woman. Um, she wrote this book Oreo in the 1970s. Um, apparently, it was released about the same time as Alex Haley's Roots. Um, and this is kind of interesting because they are two very disparate novels about the black experience. Anyone who knows about Roots, of course, is the family saga of Alex Haley tra tracing his family's lineage back to his ancestor, Kunta Kinte, who is um, captured into Africa on the western coast, and then the generations of the Haley family up to present day, which, you know, of course, was super popular and then became a TV series, which I think every black kid in America has had to watch at some point. Oreo, on the other hand, I'd never heard of. I just happened to be wandering around in Book People, um, the most <laughs> a really great bookstore here in Austin, and was looking for things to read and happened upon this book when I was looking around. And I looked her up. She apparently, um, at one point, I think had a short-lived career writing comedy for Richard Pryor and ended up, unfortunately, kind of dying in obscurity. And this book, I think, was very much kind of lost to, you know, I guess the general public um, until more recently. Um, some more, you know, well-known uh, authors of color in particular have kind of revived attention uh, towards Miss Ross. And this book is, is very interesting and extremely modern. Um, I would say it's a surreal buildings roman, for those of you who remember your English literature classes and the story of the coming of age, uh, you know, child who goes on a quest and kind of finds themselves. So uh, the, the storyline is as follows. Uh, there is the character, main character, Christine, whose nickname is Oreo, and she is off to find her father. Uh, she is of mixed um, ethnicity. Her mother is black. Her father is Jewish. And she grows up in Philadelphia, uh, being raised by her grandmother, her, her maternal grandma. Um, her grandpa kind of is a funny character uh, who doesn't really do anything of any benefit until later on in the, in the book. And her mother uh, is a math mathematical genius, one of the reasons why uh, Oreo's father was drawn to her and is off doing life for a large portion of the novel and kind of writes these letters back home to Oreo and her younger brother, Jimmy C. Uh, so I found this book to be actually very enjoyable and I was, could not help but imagine it being turned into a film. I'm really surprised there's not a screenplay for this yet. It is only a matter of time because it's like something you would see at Sundance. Um, it is crass and yet extremely witty. It is something that I feel like I, I have seen before, maybe, you know, in a more kind of... Uh, trying to think of a of a of the right terminology it just it feels extremely modern 
there's this mashup of uh, Oreo, who's very avant-garde and unconventional. She doesn't go to school. She's homeschooled by a bunch of various tutors, which are kind of uh, these gentlemen from around her neighborhood that may or may not uh, be appropriate people to be interacting with a young girl. And so she absorbs this language. Uh, she speaks in very uh, complicated verbiage. Uh, and often her words are things that, I mean, and I... I love my words. Uh, she definitely uses things that are so obscure that I'm like, I don't even know what this is. I gotta go look this up, this book up, you know, look up this word. Or she says things in Yiddish um, throughout the book. There's some German. There's the typical, you know, kind of slang of urban blacks in the inner city. And then there's her grandma, uh, Louise, who is Southern and has this ridiculous accent where she just kind of butchers words and names, um, and, it, and prose is written as such. So this is all kind of sprinkled throughout normal language, and it's, it's very sharp. Uh, there are, what I love is the turning on the head of a lot of um, kind of archetypal stories. So for example, you know, Oreo is a boss. I mean, she has this kind of, she's created her own version of martial arts, and so, you know, she's not a victim. She can take care of herself on the streets. She can, you know, completely spurn any advance from any man who's inappropriate. So she is completely safe from the pedophile, the would-be rapist, the creepy frauder on the train, or the guy who'd flash you. And she believes in justice. So she will always make sure that some dirty old man is going to get his due and maybe hopefully will not do this again to another woman in the future. So I really love how she can take care of herself. Kind of reminds me of a literary version of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. You know, you hear that and you're immediately on, on the defensive, concerned that, you know, a young woman is vulnerable to the dangers lurking in, in dark corners of a city. But actually, she's the danger. And, you know, she's, she's the one that's out there exacting you know, whether it's revenge or, or looking for her own victim. And Oreo very much operates in the same way. She's two steps ahead of, um, of the world that she's in the middle of. And so you, you learn pretty quickly that you don't have to have bated breath when she's in a scene that otherwise would make you nervous. Um, I really love her relationship with her brother her younger brother, who they have this made-up language that they speak between each other, and and all of the places where she's strong and and independent and can take care of herself. Uh, Jimmy is the softer version of that, yet he can talk his way out of things. And Oreo can talk her way out of things and also fight her way out of things, whereas Jimmy can't really fight his way out of anything. They have this bit where they go back and forth because... Uh, there's a, a game that if you've ever played as a child, you know, would you rather, where you give someone two scenarios that are both equally horrible. And whenever Oreo does this to her brother, he always faints because she comes up with the most ridiculous um, comparisons and he just can't deal. And, and so it's, it's really fun to kind of watch this relationship. Um, she clearly looks out for him. He clearly thinks she hung the moon and loves her. And, uh, and they, they have a very um, affectionate bond. Um, 
one thing that I find interesting is, you know, in this quest, it ends up being kind of a fool's quest, which I think Oreo actually knows going into it, um, that her father is really kind of a waste of space. And, you know, when he left her mother, he left with a mezuzah, and the first, I think, clue to how she could find him in the future when when she was of the right age. So he, he leaves his, you know, he leaves his family. He tells his wife, when you feel like she's ready, give her the clues, and then she can come and find me. And he's confident, I guess, that she'll eventually figure it out. And she does. Uh, but what she's getting by finding her father really isn't a lot. It's more of the journey than it is about the destination. And it's fun because I lived in Philadelphia for four years. And so it feels um, very uh, much like I'm returning home, reading about, you know, Fairmount Park and SEPTA and, you know, just all of the ins and outs of living in the city. And then Philadelphia in comparison to New York City because Oreo has to take transit to get to New York to find her father. And she takes the exact same journey that I would take when I lived in Philadelphia and would go to the city or when I lived in New York, which I moved to after Philadelphia and would go back to see my friends. She takes, you know, the, the public transit to 30th Street Station and then takes that to Penn Station. And she describes how it's like the third circle of hell. And it really cracks me up because I'm like, well, that was in the 1970s. Clearly hasn't changed very much because things are exactly the same. And so it's just really fun to kind of see her make her way uh, from one metropolis to another and the personalities of the people that she meets. Um, she does some really interesting things. She, when she's on public transit, which the next time I go to a city where I'm on a train, I'm going to start to do this. And she will look at people's shoes or look at people's noses. She'll find some part of someone's countenance and then she'll come up with a game for herself of figuring out like what they must do for their job or what's the biggest nose that she can find on the train or, or look at a pair of shoes and guess who, to whom the shoes belong and what's the body that the shoes are attached to. And sometimes she's spot on and other times she's absolutely caught off guard. And so it's, it's a very fun urban uh, experience. I, I would say be prepared to cringe a little because she does have a bit of a potty mouth uh, and the people she interacts with are rough around the edges. But there's something incredibly heartwarming. She's like a punky Brewster or, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of another, you know, strong girl, like hero that kind of comes to mind. Um, Punky Brewster seems to stand out to me for some reason. It's like an, a, an unpolished, well, Punky Brewster was unpolished anyway. Um, it's like a, a more inappropriate Punky Brewster, if you will, or Pippi Longstocking, except that she just happens to have her own parents. Uh, so I give Oreo two thumbs up. I'm just waiting to see if it's ever going to be turned into something that ends up on the screen. And I think Fran Ross should get her due. God rest her. So um, I'm going to uh, put a link to the playlist that I made. It's eight songs long, about 30 minutes. 
and it's super, it was super fun to do because it was just about, you know, girl power and this woman, this young woman being very self-assured, very independent, very self-sufficient, doing her own thing, taking no prisoners, not asking for any permission. And that's a fun playlist to make because we got lots of songs um, that support that sort of view on life. Um, so I hope you enjoy. And also things that are making me happy um, or that are giving me life for the week. So two things. One, the Renegade Craft Fair. It was my birthday last Thursday and some girlfriends from college came in to visit. And I've missed this craft fair every year that I've lived here in Austin. But luckily, I did not travel this year, and I was in town. It was a wonderful amalgamation of all sorts of makers. Jewelry, clothing, food, uh, beauty products, um, stationery. And it was perfect rainy day, um, you know, hideaway because we had torrential downpours on Sunday. And I've got some really great things. Got to chat with some awesome uh, creators doing really great work. A lot of people are kind of ethically sourced or sustainable um, creations. And so I, I highly recommend that you take a look and see if Renegade Craft Fair is coming to your city and you should go and support it. And even if you don't have money, you should go, you should see, you should collect cards, chat to people, and then when you want to buy something, you should save up and you should support your local artisans or your small business owners. Also, like everyone else, the royal wedding was extremely joy-giving to me. Um, I have always had a soft spot for Prince Harry. For both those boys, you know, to lose your mother so young. And I just wanted them to be happy and get their act together and be okay. And, you know, Harry was the one who clearly had way more fun. Um, and I love a ginger. Um, and so I was a little worried, you know, with some run-ins he'd had with, with uh, the media as a younger man. But, you know, in the last few years, he really came into his own of, like, following in the steps of his mom. And I believe truly making her proud with the things he's done um, in volunteering and philanthropy. And he just seems like a very kind, earnest soul. And I just wish both him and Megan, a lifetime of, of joy and love and plenty and that they are just happy and that they do the hard work, which, you know, Bishop Curry directed them towards um, as they now are committed that, that they just, that they look at each other and they look to God and that they do well. So I, I, it was very, it was very helpful to me. Also, on top of the fact that, I mean, let's just, before, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going over time, but I just have to say, I know what it's like to be, like, a 17-year-old in front of Buckingham Palace and, like, thinking wistfully, wow, I wonder what it must be like to be on the other side. And I cannot imagine how Meghan or her mother, particularly her mother, had to feel to think, you know, you raise your kid, you hope they turn out decently, you try to give them all the opportunities you didn't have, and you're pretty normal. And then all of a sudden, you're sitting in St. George's Chapel, and your daughter's marrying a prince for crying out loud. Like, how surreal must that be? So as a 35-year-old single person whose friends haven't set me up with anyone, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I just, I just have to give a moment of pause and say, you just don't ever know 
what is around the corner. And so with that, I hope you have a lovely week, folks. And i got to figure out what my next book is going to be, because the only other thing I'm reading is We Are Multitudes about the microbiome. And, you know, the nerd in me loves this, but it probably doesn't really fit with the theme of the show. So have a nice night. The petite polymath comes from the mind of Brit Stone, mostly stream of consciousness. I hope that you enjoy, and I hope that you will tune in next time.